Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8 today. So we began a new section last week in the Sermon on the Mount. And you guys know the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon given to Jesus who? To his followers, right? And it's not a message about how to be saved. It's a message more or less of how to live, you know, when you are saved. How to live in the kingdom of God with Jesus as the king. The kingdom of God will be established fully in its fullest sense when Jesus comes in his second coming. But there's also this other sense of the kingdom of God that is here and now. Wherever the king is enthroned and his subjects are living in subjection to him, that's essentially an outpost of the kingdom of God. Like I say, it'll be established in full measure when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom. But this, in a sense, is the outpost of the kingdom of God in a way. Your home is. If Jesus is the king of your home, then the king's rule is over your home. And so the Sermon on the Mount teaches people how to live in this kingdom with Jesus as their king. And we've been through a whole bunch of information so far. I invite you just to keep reading Matthew 5, 6, and 7 throughout the week, just to kind of, you know, we zero in on like three verses, and it's good just to have the whole thing and to, and to imagine it all being delivered at once. Um, but today, we're going to continue as we do with just three more verses. We're in this section where Jesus is talking about spiritual disciplines. Now, this is all under the heading of Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. And that's sort of the thesis statement for chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. And under that heading, we looked last week at the spiritual discipline of giving. And essentially the message was, don't do your giving in such a way that you're going to get the attention of man, right? Don't have that sort of motive of like, look at me and my giving, you know, and I'm so uh, spiritual because I give so much. Don't do your giving in a way to where people, uh, you know, notice it. Don't have that motive. Now, this week, he goes on to the next spiritual discipline, which is prayer. That's what we're going to look at today. Today, we begin looking at this wonderful and vitally important spiritual discipline, this privilege of prayer. Now, why do we pray? Well, there's a number of reasons. Um, Some would say just the main reason is just obedience. God tells us to pray to him. Some would say that's the main reason, but there's a bunch of reasons. Um, We pray as we prepare for major decisions in life, don't we? We pray before we eat to bless God, you know, and to ask him to bless our food. We pray to overcome demonic barriers in our lives and in the lives of others. We pray to gather workers for the spiritual harvest. Lord, send workers into the harvest. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. We pray to gain strength to to overcome temptation. And we pray to strengthen others spiritually. There's a lot of reasons that we pray. One old pastor of old days, William Law, he says this, Prayer is the nearest approach to God and the highest enjoyment of him that we are capable of in this life. It's the nearest approach to God to be able to pray. You're never closer to the Lord than when, you know, you're praying to him. You're in communion and fellowship with him like that. Now, prayer is, that's, that's why we pray. Prayer is essential to the Christian life. If you've ever read anything by E.M. Bounds, I don't, has anybody ever read E.M. Bounds? If you want to get kicked in your butt about your prayer life, then read Ian Bounds. Like his books are just like this guy loves prayer. And uh, he says this, when prayer fails, the the world prevails. I'm sorry. When prayer fails, the world prevails. 
Prayer is essential to the Christian life. We, the, the Bible says, don't love the world or the things of the world, you know, or else the love of God's not in you. So he says, when prayer fails, the world prevails in your own life, especially. Another quote by him says, we are in danger of substituting churchly work and a ceaseless round of showy activities for prayer and holy living. And he says this, listen, a holy life does not live in the prayer closet, but it cannot live without the prayer closet. So prayer is important because you need it for holy living. You can't live a holy life without a private devotional life with the Lord to be getting and receiving from the Lord and pouring out to the Lord and, and getting the things that you need to live a holy, uh, you know, a holy life as God wants you to. Now, the devil hates prayer tremendously. Here's another quote from another old-time pastor. His name's R.A. Torrey. Listen to this one. He says, when the devil sees a man or woman who really believes in prayer, who knows how to pray, and who really does pray, and above all, when he sees a whole church on its face before God in prayer, he trembles as much as he ever did, for he knows that his day in that church and community is at an end. So the devil's scared of churches that pray, of Christians that pray, he says, when he sees it, he knows that his footholds, his strongholds over people, addictions, abuse, all these different things, it's coming down when there's a church that's on their face in prayer. Uh, and that's just an expression. You know, you don't, if we, if we come in later and you're on your face, we won't interrupt you, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a show of, you know, we're desperate. We need you, Lord. The devil hates prayer. Now, since prayer is so vitally important, the enemy works hard to discourage it to distract us from it, to confuse us about it. And he tempts us to pervert it and turn it into a thing of show. So Jesus says, verse 5, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Now assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, Go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Father, as we approach your word today, we do know that you know all of our needs. And so that's our prayer is that you would meet those needs through the study of your word here today. Father, you know us better than we know ourselves. And as we turn to your word today, we ask that you would make your book live to us, that you would show us ourselves. Father, would you show us our need for our Savior? We ask this in Jesus' name. It's important to be schooled in the school of prayer if we're to live godly and to produce any fruit for the kingdom of heaven here in Mason City. So in the next few weeks, we're going to look at the discipline of prayer. We're going to be in the school of prayer with the master, as they would say, for the next few weeks. The model prayer is coming after this, and you guys know it as the Lord's Prayer. More accurately, it would be called the Disciples' Prayer um, because it's, you know, it's not a prayer that the Lord would pray because he asks for forgiveness of sin. He says, you know, forgive us our trespasses. The Lord doesn't have any trespasses, right? So it's more fittingly, you know, as the disciples' prayer. And we're going to take every element of that apart over the next few weeks and grow in our prayer life as a result.
So we are in school with the master in the school of prayer. The outline is simple today, and there are really just three points that I want to pull out, three points that are in this little text here. Since God gives us the privilege of prayer, he wants us to be effective in it. We ought to learn how to pray. So our lesson begins with three points. If we'll have an effective prayer life, uh, we must, number one, pray to God. Number two, pray meaningful words. And number three, pray knowing God knows all. The first one seems really obvious, but it's interesting as we talk about it, you'll find uh, that it needs to be said, right? So number one, pray to God, pray meaningful words. Number two, number three, pray knowing God knows all. Number one, let's pray. Let's see that we need to pray to God. So when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Now, he starts out and he says, and when you pray. And just like he said about giving and just like he will say about fasting, He's saying, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. And we drew out the fact that Jesus just assumes that his people pray. It's a godly thing to pray. It's a true statement to say, godly people give, pray, and fast, according to Jesus' assumption. The word pray, or a variation of it, prayed, praise, prayer, um, in the Bible according to my Bible software, it shows up 374 times uh, in the Bible, nearly every book of the Bible. Psalm 5.2, the psalmist says, Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I will pray. Another Psalm 55.17, Evening and morning and noon I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. Proverbs, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Isaiah 55, 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Jeremiah 29, 12, then you will call upon me, God says, and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. Ephesians, Paul even, you know, assumes the same thing. Ephesians 6, 18 uh, says that we'll pray always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Colossians 4, 2, continuing earnestly in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without what? Right. And why wouldn't we pray, right? John 14, 14, Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, he'll what? He'll do it. He'll give it. Why wouldn't we pray? Matthew 7, 11, if you then, he says, being evil, know how to give, he's talking to, to fathers. If you, if you then, know, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Why wouldn't we pray? James 5, I love this one too, 15 and 16. Listen to this. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Jesus assumes we will pray, and why wouldn't we pray? It's too bad that we don't pray more. James 4, 2 says, you don't have because you do not ask, right? A lot of people say, I don't get a lot of prayers answered in my life. Well, there's maybe a couple of things going on. When Jesus says, I'll do anything, you know, I'll give you, he says, in my name. So first of all, you have to wrestle with that. Are you praying in his name? And another reason a lot of prayers don't get answered in people's lives is because they just don't ask. Like we just don't have because we just don't ask. And we take certain things to the Lord, but we don't take others, right? So Jesus assumes we'll pray. Verse 2, he says, don't be like the hypocrites, though, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets. 
So the Jews had three times a day that were appointed uh, for prayer, 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. And, you know, if sometimes they go to the synagogue. Um, apparently, you didn't have to go to the synagogue uh, to pray, but a lot of people would. You read in the book of Acts, they were on their way to the hour of prayer when the guy with the ankles, you know, and they lifted him up, and you remember the healing there. Now, so it says the hypocrites here, Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the ones that wear the mask. Don't be like the ones that do your spirituality as, you know, you're trying to get an audience uh, of man. He says, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues. Now, it was a common practice that you would be, you know, somebody would be asked to come up and pray in the synagogue. I read one commentator, he said that, you know, they would bring a person up and they would pray, you know, in front of the whole congregation and what Jesus is saying is they loved to pray in those situations so they would be seen by men. They didn't come up and love to pray because they're like, I love to talk to God. They're like, I love it that everybody here thinks I'm a person of prayer. I, I really like that, right? And there's another place that they love to pray, and it says on the street corners. Now, sometimes, uh, you know, if you were one of these hours of prayer would come up, you would, you know, go pray. But you could do this in a way where you could be discreet about it or you could do it in a way where you weren't so discreet about it. Oh, it looks like it's the hour of prayer again. Well, I'll tell you what. Where can I go pray where everybody will see me? Because I want them to see how spiritual I am. And that was kind of the idea. Jesus says they love to do this, but he says don't, don't be like this. Now, notice that statement there that's a variation of this statement is characteristic in the discipline of giving and prayer and of fasting. Notice what it says there. That they may be seen by men. That's the problem. It's not necessarily that Jesus, Jesus isn't prohibiting corporate prayer. Now, in fact, some people have went to that extreme and said, if what Jesus is saying here is true, no corporate prayer. Nobody should pray in front of anybody, right? But the problem isn't the corporate prayer. It's the motive behind the prayer of the individual. That they may be seen by men. Now, when you get to the book of Acts, there's corporate prayer all through it. And Jesus, in fact, prays publicly. So we know he's not prohibiting that. He's condemning this sort of motive that says, I'm the spiritual prayer person. I'm the one. Uh, you know, look, look to me for spirituality. Now, this is a real temptation for Christians. And it's funny, I've listened to a bunch of sermons on this passage. And uh, one thing that was in common with all of them was they all said, this is a big temptation for pastors. And I'll agree with this because um, it's a temptation for me to get to the end of the message. And then we're, now we're going to pray, right? Father, thank you. Thank you for the message today. And, uh, you know, and then we recap the three points. And we're actually not talking to the Lord anymore. We're just teaching still. You know what I mean? And, and we're, we're starting to, we're not really talking to God at this point. You know what I mean? Now, it's not only a temptation for pastors. Have you ever been, you know, it's a temptation in a group. Like you're in a little prayer group with people. And all of a sudden you get to somebody and they start out talking to God. But then the next thing you know, they're giving everybody in the group the update of everything's going on, you know. Like, God, and you know the fact that, you know, uh, my aunt, you know, her dog ran away. And you know that that dog is somewhere and it's been chipped. And you know that they, you know, decided to do that even though they were against it at first. But, you know, thank God her husband just decided to get the dog chipped because now they'll probably find it, you know, amen, 
right? And, uh, you know, that wasn't a prayer to God. That was, you know, you're just giving everybody the update, you know? And uh, kind of a weird thing to bring God's name into my update. You know what I mean? That's this kind of a weird thing. Uh, and they're doing it to be seen. You know, it's a variation of what he's saying. You're doing it to be seen by men, to be, you know, you're not praying, talking to God. You're praying, sort of, talking to man. We have to watch out for this. Bless you. Now, cele- celebrities, you know, the, I, I was Googling this verse, you know, just, and then type, you know, go to Google, type in this verse, and then, type, and then go to images and look at it, right? And there were all these people criticizing, you know, remember last year while, where all the politicians, you know, have really, politics became extremely spiritual in the last year, right? I mean, the Christians against the everybody else, you know, and all this business, right? And there's all these pictures online that I found of, you know, politicians, and they're all holding hands, you know, in solidarity, and they're down taking a knee, and they're all praying together. And then somebody will put this verse right across the graphic and make this meme of, do not pray to be seen by men. And you've got athletes, you know, down in the end zone taking a knee for Jesus, you know what I mean? And, and listen, I think that's great if your heart's in the right place, but who knows? Jesus isn't necessarily condemning doing that. He's condemning the motive that's going on in the heart. And Man, we love Jesus because he cuts right to the real issue of things, right? Now, that's a big temptation. It's a temptation to be in a restaurant and, and, you know, you want to pray to have your food blessed, but eventually you become, well, I want to pray just so everybody sees me in here, you know, because I want to show them how Christian and how they need Jesus. And that's why I'll make sure to pray always, you know. So it's the motive of the heart, something to watch out for. But when you pray, verse 6, go into your room and when you have shut your door, Pray to your father who's in the secret place, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, here's the positive. That was the negative. Don't be like the hypocrites. Here comes the positive. Now, the idea here is that prayer isn't to impress anybody, but it's to be between you and the Lord. You're supposed to have a real relationship with the Lord of where it wouldn't matter if you're in the most private setting. You're just you're praying to him. You believe in him. You trust in him. You trust in his provision. It doesn't matter who sees um, some have taken this literally. Apparently, the gal in that movie War Room, she took it literally. You know, she's in the closet, you know, praying. And, and um, some people take it literally, and I don't think that's probably a bad idea. Um, but maybe it's a figure of speech. You know, I don't know if some commentators think it is. But the principle is, you know, if you trust in your Heavenly Father for His care, you don't care who sees, you're in this private place with him and you're getting uh, what you need from him uh, in this quiet, private, devotional life. Personally, I, I think it's a good discipline to find a place of prayer and to um, go to a place where you don't get distracted and disrupted, you know, um, very practically. Like, don't take your phone with you when you're going to pray. Um, don't, you know. Don't take distractions with you. So the first point, pray to God. And you thought when I read that point, it was kind of obvious, but it's not kind of obvious. We need to make sure that our prayers are directed to him. We're talking to him. We're not sitting there praying, trying to, you know, teach or manipulate somebody else or do something like that. We're trying to pray to him, to talk to him. Now, another very uh, important lesson in prayer, number two. Pray meaningful words. Verse 7 says, and when you pray, again the assumption, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. 
Here's the next instruction, a negative. Don't use vain repetitions. Correct prayer is not filled with vain repetitions. Useless, vain, meaningless, right? Now, first of all, this does not mean do not pray the same request over and over again. Has anybody ever heard that? I've heard people say, well, I'll pray things to God one time, but I won't ask for the same thing twice because that would be a vain repetition. That's not what he's getting at here. Um, Jesus prayed the same prayer multiple times, even in the garden. Paul prayed, you know, people pray the same request. That's, that's a good thing to keep praying for the same, uh, you know, thing until you know, and keep lifting that thing up. But he's talking about vain repetitions here. There were, according to one commentator I found, there were some Jewish rabbis that taught that long prayers were the ones that got heard, Uh, you know, that they would be heard for their many words. Like the longer it was, the better. Um, One of them, I found this famous prayer, and it began like this. Um, It said, Blessed Praised, glorified, exalted, honored, magnified, and lauded be the name of the Lord of the Holy One of Israel. And that was like the intro and just just heaping on as many words as you could. And like somehow um, every one that you added on was closer to like tripping the lock or like opening the thing up. You know what I mean? It's kind of like a, well, it's actually kind of like a pagan sort of philosophy, right? Like sort of like a rub the lamp until until you've rubbed it enough times and then, then the thing will open to you, right? Another example of this is in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18. You remember the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Um, Essentially, you know, what they did, it said uh, in verse, I believe it's verse 26, as they were trying to get Baal to like act on their behalf, it says that they called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon. So they just kept going on and going on, trying to make Baal work on their behalf. Now, they actually took it even further and started cutting themselves, trying to get Baal to perform. Now, kind of a weird thing. Now, also, there's a New Testament example of this similar thing in the book of Acts, right? You guys uh, remember that in Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus, there was a mob gathered all together, and they kept chanting over and over, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they chanted that for two hours, that same chant. It's like giving, uh, you know, all these words. The more that we do this, the more, the less reluctant God, you know, our God becomes to start performing for us. Now, if you really start to think about this, this is very similar to the Hail Marys, you know. Oh, well, you did this particular thing? Okay, here's the prescription. Ten Hail Mary, all these are fathers. And eventually what people start doing is they start repeating these things, just to get through them. And they, they're starting to think of God more as like a pagan deity in a way, like if you push the right button and you do the right combination, then God will be uh, pleased with you, right? And this is not the idea of the Christian God, of the true living God. This isn't the idea that he is like a, a safe or like, you know, like a video game. You remember when you used to play Contra and uh, back on Nintendo and you would do up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, B, A, start, and then you would get infinite lives. You remember that? A lot of people think God is like that, uh, you know, where if you push the right combination, then he's going to act on your behalf. People think of God like that. But that's not how God operates. God is not somebody that you type in the appropriate code to get him to perform on your behalf. 
He's a real living being. He's a father. He's not a you know, mysterious uh, box that you push the right code and, and then he performs. That's actually, if you really think through that, it's kind of a liberating thing for your prayer life because there are a lot of people that are kind of trapped in this mechanical sort of relationship with God and they think that if I don't stand the right way or if I don't face the right way or if I don't do the right things, if I don't say the right words in prayer, then God isn't going to answer. And that's not how our God is. God's, he wants you to think of him as a living father, a being that you're talking to, not just some mechanical thing that you need to push buttons. It's really tragic that the model prayer here, the, you know, as we know as the Lord's Prayer, it's really tragic that that got turned into a vain repetition. You know, I remember when I was a kid going to church, um, they would start out, um, our Father who art in heaven, and everybody was really loud. And then it would sort of go down the volume until eventually there were only like three people saying it at the end because nobody really memorized it all the way through. But what we did have was sort of like, you know, it was a vain repetition sort of going. And I'm sure there were people in there with the right heart in that environment, you know, praying that prayer with the heart. But it's just so ironic to me that right before the Lord's Prayer is given, Jesus says, don't use vain repetitions. And then to turn that prayer into a vain repetition, that's bizarre to me, you know. That's uh, kind of interesting. I always wondered who Harold was. Harold be thy name. I was like, who's Harold? That was interesting. I remember before I became a Christian, um, I remembered this prayer that my grandma taught me, and I turned it into a vain repetition. Now I lay me down to sleep. I you know, pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, pray the Lord my soul to take. Not really very theologically accurate, by the way. You know, if you're a Christian, you're, you're already good, you know, when it comes to my soul and he's going to take, you know what I mean? But... I remember at a point in my life later on, I was starting to get in trouble and, you know, seeking the Lord and depressed and anxious and drugged out and all this other stuff. And I would think superstitiously, if I just got through this thing every night, that it was somehow going to be okay. And so started out with the right heart in the beginning. I was repentant. You know, I think I didn't know much about God, but eventually I would just try to get through it. You know, like if I said all the words, then, you know, God would perform correctly because I said all the words. Get faster and faster about it. That's a really cheap understanding of God, you know. Imagine if your father was like that, you know what I mean? And you just you went up to your dad and you just rattle off some rote thing that you've memorized, and um, because you did that right, then he's going to care for you, you know. It's a, it's a cheap thing, right? So we must guard against meaningless prayer. Now, we can also, being well-meaning Christians, can turn our own prayers into vain repetitions, Right? I heard a pastor one time draw attention to, he said, we need to pay attention to how we start praying because we might just easily get into this introduction that's just vain. You know, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, my Father. And, and, you know, be careful that your prayer life doesn't become a vain repetition. Pay attention to every word that it wouldn't become a vain repetition. On the same token, we should also think about singing songs that we don't engage our hearts with. and Because uh, they're essentially prayers, right? It's good to talk to God just like you talk to anybody else. You know, just like if, if you're in your car, just talk to God like you would talk to anybody else, you know? He's in the room with you, and he wants to hear from you. So remember, you're praying to God, 
And you're to use meaningful words, not just vain repetitions. And finally, number three, pray knowing that God knows all. Therefore, do not be like them. That's the hypocrites that use vain repetitions. For your father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. So your father knows. I love those three words. Your father knows. That's awesome. Now, in typical Jewish culture in that day, the father was a loving, trustworthy man. He was dependable to provide for all the needs of the family. Uh, so to say your father knows, that meant something different in that culture than it does today. There are some people where you say the word father and they get like their facial tick starts happening again. They're like, oh, oh, <laughs> that guy's a jerk, you know, my father or whatever. And that's unfortunate. I mean, I've been there, have that experience, and uh, the Lord will... Um, you know, show you what it means that he's a good father. Your father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. So what Jesus is instructing here is a relationship of intimacy, not this business transaction of just like pushing buttons and having a vain sort of like mechanical, manipulative relationship with God. He's saying, he's your father. He knows the needs that you have even before you can vocalize them to him. And just kind of as an aside, isn't that neat to think about? Isn't it a wonderful thought and a comforting thought that the Creator knows your every need? Like He knows the things um, that you need healing from in your heart. He knows what hurts. He knows what's lacking. He knows what will help you grow, and He knows what will make you spiritually prosper. He knows what to keep you from. He knows what will hurt you. knows the very best thing for you and the very best time for that thing. That's a really a beautiful truth to, to meditate on today. Talk about a cure for, you know, a lot of anxiety, you know. People have a lot of anxiety today, don't they? And um, some people, however, kind of like it. They like to wear it as a merit badge, you know. But there are a lot of people that are, like, plagued with anxiety. But if, if you meditate on that truth... Um, you know, it could at least minister to that a little bit, you know. He knows all the things that you need before you even ask him. Now, today, New Agers, they pray to the universe. They'll say, if you make a positive confession to the universe and you truly believe it, the universe will send the things to you that you truly believe, that you claim. As long as you claim it in the positive, like, Universe, I have all the puppies that I want, or whatever, you know. The, all, as long as you claim it positively and you pray to the universe, the universe will deliver. That's a very common New Age philosophy. In fact, we have a store next door where you could go get your chakras balanced, do some Reiki healing, and you could pray to the universe with everybody over there. That's a very common thing today. Very impersonal, right? That's a very impersonal thing. I'm going to pray to this expanse out here. What I always find interesting is just, if you're going to pray to the universe, why not pray to the one that made the universe? And why doesn't your brain go a little bit further into the next step of like, there has to be, since there's a creation, there has to be a creator. Why do I want to pray to this impersonal universe when somebody, or, you know, at least, at least, you know, some things, there has to be a creator if there's a creation, right? It's just logic, right? Very impersonal. Now, obviously, too, you know, and the prosperity gospel, it's the same sort of thing. Like, you know, if you pray 
positively and you, you claim in Jesus' name, I claim the healing of, you know, this person. I claim financial prosperity. It's owed to me. You know, I claimed it positively, so God has to answer my prayer. So look, man, your father knows the needs that you have before you even ask him. So this whole, like, if you claim this stuff positively enough, and it's, it's really, that's actually really similar to the New Age theory of pray into the universe. It's just about the same thing, only they've swapped, they put God in there just to make it more uh, profitable, I think. Therefore, do not be like them. The issue here is people who do not understand what it means to know God as a heavenly father. So instead of trusting a father to fulfill their needs, they think they must badger a reluctant deity into taking notice of them, is what one commentator says. They don't know God as a father, so they think they need to badger a reluctant God into taking notice of them. And so Jesus says, no, your father knows all the things that you need even before you ask him. That really affects your prayer life, doesn't it? I mean, yesterday I was in the prayer meeting and I'm sitting here and telling God, stuff he already knows. And I got convicted about it. And I was like, Lord, I'm sorry, you know. Uh, Lord, this country is in the hands of all kinds of crazy people that want to, oh, well, you already know that, Lord. <laughs> you know, I don't, okay, wait a minute. Your will be done, Lord. And uh, it changes your prayer life tremendously when you're sitting there with the Lord and, and you, you have this in your heart. God, you already know what I need. It also helps me not to ask for foolish things, right? Like, you know, I don't have to sit there and harp on something and try to get my will to be done because his will includes him knowing my needs. That, that affected me last night as I was even praying. Like, what a relief this is that I don't have to sit here and know exactly what to even pray for. I don't have to know everything. I can just pray to him as a father and say, just go ahead and do what's best, you know? That's a relief in your prayer life. It, it is for me. It takes a lot of pressure off of me. The Holy Spirit will help us because we don't know how we ought to pray as we ought. And uh, that's a really good thing. And it's a temptation, though, to, And you'll pay attention to that more when you're in a prayer meeting. And, you know, the, your buddy next to you will be telling God everything he knows, and you'd be like, hey, God already knows that. <laughs> so, we need to be solid in the fact that God knows all and that he desires to meet our needs as a good heavenly father. So you're praying to God, you're using meaningful words, and praying that God knows all. And that's all we're going to look at today. We, I, you know, I debated on how much of this to go through, but with the model prayer beginning next week, I didn't want to go through this and then try to get into that because let's just take it apart piece by piece. Since God gives us the privilege of prayer and he wants us to be effective in it, we ought to learn how to pray. And if we're going to have effective prayer lives, we must pray to God, not to man, not to be seen by man, pray meaningful words and pray knowing that God knows all. Now, if you haven't come into this relationship with God today, um, I wanted to make that available to you. If you haven't come to know God as a father, I think it's a beautiful truth that God wants to know us and wants us to know him as a father. And if you haven't given your life to the Lord today to come to know him as Father, I want to explain to you how to do that. It's a simple concept, and we'll try to make it as simple as possible here. And just three points, really. <coughs> the first one, um, if you want to come into this relationship with God, with the Creator, know, know first of all that he created you. 
And he created you for a purpose and for an intention. And all humans are born sort of falling short of that intention. God created Adam and Eve, and he created them in the Garden of Eden, and he created them um, without sin, and they were in perfect fellowship with him. And so um, he, uh, you know, they had this beautiful relationship with their creator. Now what happened was God made available, God made this tree in there, and he said, um, you can do anything you want. You can eat of every tree of the garden, but I don't want you to eat of this one tree. And in the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. Now, the way to understand it is, and I believe this, is, this makes sense to me, and it makes sense to my understanding of the scriptures, is God wants love from his creation, right? He loves you, and so the natural response that he wants back is love to him. Because we have this option to not love him, you know, that's why he made this possibility available. He makes this option to not love him. People say, well, if God knew that we were going to eat of this tree and disobey him, why would he even create it in the first place? I believe an understanding of that is if God wants love, he has to give an option not to love, right? Like if I tell my wife, you have to love me. There's no choice. I mean, it would be, it's hard for her not to. But what if I, but the love doesn't work like that, right? We watched a documentary one night about the Stockholm Syndrome, right? Where they didn't have any option to get away and eventually like the gals fell in love with the bank robbers, right? You know? God wants genuine response and he wants genuine love out of his creation. So he has to give you an option to disobey him, to, to turn from him, right? Or else that wouldn't be real love, right? And so that's how I understand the tree in the garden of Eden. And you know how it went. Um, the serpent, he was crafty, and he came and he tempted Adam and Eve. And uh, they took of the fruit and they did eat. And in that moment, uh, sin came into the world, sin and death and the repercussions of disobedience. Now the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned. Now, we have to understand Adam and Eve are like, you know, if you go to uh, Ancestry.com, and if Ancestry.com like had like a massive program, way better than it is right now, eventually it would take you all the way back to Adam and Eve, right? <laughs> you get that, you send in your DNA and you get it in the mail. Oh, Adam and Eve. <laughs> and so, because they sinned, we've all sinned. That's what Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and we've all done things that are displeasing to God and there's no one who's innocent, right? This is something that you have to understand if you want to come into a relationship with your heavenly father. If you want to come and be saved and if you want to call him father and you want him to call you his child. Romans 6.23 gives us the consequences of this sin that we have. It says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the punishment that we've all earned for our sins is eternal death according to God's word. So that's really the first step of coming into this relationship with the Lord is admitting that I know this is true about myself. I know I've sinned, I've fallen short of the glory of God. I know 
that I've broken his laws, that I've broken his commands, and that I have not glorified him in every area of my life. And you know you're hard-pressed to find somebody that would deny that about themselves. There are people that will say, well, I'm a human, I just make mistakes. Well, that's true, and that's fine. But what God calls that is sin. And so, and God says there, that there's a legal repercussion for sin. There's a payment for sin. There's a, there's a consequence. So that's the first step, is just coming to grips with that and just kind of dropping the whole excuse of, well, I just make mistakes. Well, that's true, but it's sin. So the next thing is then to believe. Um, Romans 6.23 leaves off, you know, the first part of it says the wages of sin is death, but the second part says that eternal life is the gift of God through Jesus Christ. So we have to believe that. It says in Romans, but God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5.8. So we were born in sin, but when we were in our sin, Christ died for us. That's the provision God's made. Jesus Christ died for us. Jesus' death paid for the price of our sins. And Jesus' resurrection proves that God accepted Jesus' death as the payment for our sins. Now, that's what must be believed. If you are going to come into a relationship with God, you have to believe in the way, you have to trust in the way that he has provided for you to be saved. And that's through Christ, his son, through trusting in Christ and what he did on the cross. Now, the last step of our three points here, we would say it's just confess or call upon the name of the Lord. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you'll be saved. Because of Jesus' death on our behalf, all we must do is believe in him, trusting in his death as the payment for our sins. And then God says that we'll be saved if we believe this, if we trust in that. Romans 10.13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anybody that calls upon his name will be saved. Finally, I would say Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what that is getting at is if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you trust in God's provision for your sin, for you to be forgiven, you come out of one relationship with the Creator and you come into another one. Before you come into a relationship with the Creator as His son or daughter through Christ, you're in a relationship where God's actually hostile towards you because of sin. And the Bible is clear that there's really only two camps you can be in. You can be under God's wrath or you can be saved and not under God's wrath anymore. So you can be either at peace with God or you can um, be at war with God. And that's what this verse is getting at. It says, therefore, since we have been justified, that's a word for saying that we've been saved through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Because of my faith in Christ, then God the Father says, Adam's no longer an object of my wrath, but he is, I look at him as a son now. And I've come into that, I've come into that family. I've been adopted, if you will, into God's family at that point. No longer shall the wrath of God abide on me. Um, why? Because all of that wrath that I deserved was placed on Christ. 
Now my faith in what Christ did, God says, fine. The faith, uh, I'll, I'll look at that faith as um, righteousness. This is, this is my requirement, is that he trusts in Jesus. He does, so the wrath of God was put on the cross on Christ, and so it's no longer on me. And I receive that through faith. Then Romans 8.1 teaches us that there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because of Jesus' death on our behalf, we will never be condemned for our sins here. That's a beautiful truth today. For those of you who know Christ, that's a, that's a great place to walk around uh, in life knowing that there's no condemnation for you, that your sin has been paid for and nailed to the cross in Christ. I plead with you today, if you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, You've got to know the facts that you're under his wrath. You're in a position where you have not been saved. You're in a position to where if you were to die tonight, that God will not accept anybody into heaven unless they've been saved. And and Jesus says that I'm the way, the truth, the life. There's nobody that comes to the Father except through me. I'm trying to make sure that I really say this stuff all calmly today because God, you know, spoke to me. I don't want to say he's, you know, I think God communicated with me last night in my prayer time that we want to see something genuine happen by the power of God, not because Adam can get up here and like get people whipped up emotionally. So most of you know this is kind of an off day. I'm a lot more subdued than usual. <laughs> Everybody laughs. Yeah. But this gospel that God created me, I've broken his laws, I'm a sinner, I'm under his wrath, I need to be saved, and I can be by trusting in Jesus Christ, by giving, by putting my faith in him. This message is so important, it's a life or death message. I'm hoping to communicate that to anybody here that hasn't received Christ today. In a way, though, where the Holy Spirit is speaking to your conscience, where it's not based on how whipped up I get people, right? If you want to give your life to the Lord today, um, it's good to confess Jesus Christ before other people. It's good to get right with the Lord before other people and to um, make a profession of faith. And so if you've been sensing that God is drawing you and wanting you to be his son or his daughter, and I want to help you today by just guiding you in a very basic prayer. This stuff is basic, you know, it's simple. We're talking to a Heavenly Father. We're talking to the Creator here. Our Heavenly Father that knows our needs before we ask. And I just want to lead you through this. And you can repeat this out loud or you can repeat it in the quiet place of your heart, whatever you choose. If you want to come into that relationship with the Lord today, it's very simple. Lord, I know that I am a sinner that I have broken your laws, that I've lied, I've failed to do what is right, I've failed to give you glory in everything. I haven't lived up to what you created me for. I admit that I'm a sinner, Lord. But I understand that you sent Jesus, your son, to take the wrath of sin, the penalty that I deserve for my sin, upon himself. 
at the cross. I believe that he died for me. I want to trust in what he did at the cross. Father, I want to give my life to you. I turn from my sin and I turn to my Savior. Guide my life. Be the Lord of my life. Teach me to follow you. Teach me to live my purpose. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and change me. I give myself to you. In Jesus' name, amen.